The following is brought to you by the Leave It in the Ring Podcast Network. All boxing, no filter. Greetings and welcome to the Boxing Esquire Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Boxing Esquire Podcast, presented by The Ring at ringtv.com and distributed by the Leave It in the Ring Network. It was my distinct pleasure to have as my guest on this episode, author and boxing historian Mike Silver. We talk about Mike's new book, The Night the Referee Hit Back, memorable moments from the world of boxing. It's a compilation of articles and interviews that Mike's done over the years. It's really captivating and uh, provocative. Highly recommend. Um, got into Mike's background and how he had the chance to train alongside Emil Griffith and Ingemar Johansson at the iconic Stillman's Gym in Midtown Manhattan in the late 50s, early 60s. Mike gives a great account of the history of that gym and its significance. We also spoke about the history of the governance of the sport and how there was only one world champion per division for decades and how tournaments of contenders fighting to determine a new champ in divisions where the title was vacant were a common occurrence throughout the 1920s through the late 60s. Imagine a boxing board like that. Finally, Mike gives boxing fans a great list of fights from boxing's golden age to demonstrate the skills and technique that may be missing from today's fighters. It was a great conversation. Hope you enjoy. It is my pleasure to have as my guest on this episode, boxing historian and author Mike Silver. Mike has a new book out that's a great read called The Night the Referee Hit Back. Welcome to the Boxing Esquire podcast, Mike. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, I just want to say the subtitle of the book is Memorable Moments from the World of Boxing. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Definitely uh, highly encourage people to, uh, to, to go out and buy it. It's, it's, it's kind of uh, a compilation of, of articles that you've written over the years, right? Absolutely. It's a compilation of uh, articles and interviews that I've done over the past 40 years. And I, I've done you know, well over a hundred. And I picked out what I thought was the cream of the crop or at least 28 of them. And, um, I thought it'd be worth putting into a book. So that's, that's what I did. No, it's really enjoyable. It's really enjoyable. But, uh, before we get into the book, just, uh, introducing, you know, for, for those who don't know you, uh, you know, where, where, where you just wanted to get into your background. So where, where are you from originally? Well, originally from New York, I grew up in Queens, and uh, I'm a New York boy, so uh, I was lucky in a way. I was uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, I was the epicenter of the sport. And um, for a boxing fan, I mean, there were other great cities, but uh, I'm sure if any boxing fan had his choice at that time, he would say, if I had to live anywhere, let me live in New York the headquarters of Madison Square Garden, and of course the great Stillman's Gym, and, uh, you know, activity and publicity and so on. So I've been in New York most of my, all of my life. Oh, that's great. That's great. So were you a sports fan growing up? It's funny. I was, I was not really a sports fan per se. I, I mean, if the Yankees played or the Dodgers played in the World Series, I followed that. I rooted for my home team. But I, I was not really a fan, uh, other than a casual fan, of other sports. The only sport that really I got into in a very heavy way was boxing. Um, that just got into my blood. As any boxing fan will tell you, 
it, the sport gets into your blood and, and you become just, uh, a fan and, uh, you start reading ring magazine, boxing illustrated, you just can't get enough of it. But, uh, that's the only sport that I really, um, was involved with in a big way. Yeah. So when, 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 um, so do you remember when you first became interested in, in the sport of boxing? Yeah. Well, there was a progression. Um, I was first, like when I was a kid, like uh, 9, 10, 11, I used to love to watch professional wrestling. I was a big fan of professional wrestling. You know, Killer Kowalski, the Graham Brothers, um, Johnny Valentine, all these uh, wrestling stars. And I remember my father, who was somewhat of a boxing fan, used to put on the fights, uh, the Friday night fights, and he said, come on, watch a fight. And I really wasn't that interested. Wrestling was my sport. <laughs> and then... It's hard to explain. Um, I started getting curious about boxing, and um, uh, just about the age of, of 14, when I was just uh, before I was 14, um, I began to get curious about boxing. And um, I used to, um, I saw on the newsstand there was a, a magazine called Boxing uh, Illustrated Wrestling and Wrestling News. Right. And, um, I had, I remember I was, I was, uh, ill, uh, in, I was a kid came down with one of these, you know, what, I don't know what's chicken pox or something. I was home and I asked my younger brother, I said, go to the, and I wanted something to read. I said, go to the newsstand and get this magazine called, uh, boxing illustrated wrestling news. And I wanted it just for the wrestling. And when, uh, he brought it home, I, I finished the wrestling section and there was nothing else to read except the boxing. So I started to read the boxing. And it, 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 it was interesting. I was reading these stories about these, the fighters, and there was a special issue about the heavyweight championship. And uh, the great uh, publisher, uh, Stanley Weston, had the magazine at that, at that time. And he, he wrote in a way, he understood the romance of the sport. And what attracted him to the sport attracted me to the sport. And then shortly thereafter, I read 50 Years at Ringside by Nat Fleischer. Within a month, I became just, that was it. I was a boxing fan. I started watching the Friday night fights and the Wednesday night fights, and I was hooked. And don't forget, at the time, this is 1959, um, Sugar Ray Robinson was still active. Right. And so was Archie Moore. Right. And I saw these guys fight on TV. And... Uh, and just uh, not more than a month or two after I got interested in boxing, Ingemar Johansson won the heavyweight title. So it was an exciting time. And, uh, and then at the same time, within a few months, my father brought me to Stillman's gym for boxing lessons. That's I awesome. mean, you know, GI. So everything was falling into place. And there I was in Stillman's gym, uh, seeing the fighters um, that I would see on television working out there, right. you know, uh, it is just a remarkable experience for me. And I wrote about it in the book. Absolutely. In fact, that's my first chapter. Um, yeah. where I, 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 I talk about boxing, uh, in old New York, the unforgettable Stillman's gym. And who anybody was, uh, who experienced Stillman's, it was unforgettable. It was an iconic landmark in New York. I mean, you could go there and, uh, you would, uh, not just see the, 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 the you know great fighters of the day the contenders and 
but you you could also rub shoulders with gangsters who would show up there <laughs> and uh, uh and, and again successful businessmen or cab drivers i mean people went up there to, it was like 50 cents admission and what a show you, you they had um eight rows of uh, chairs about about 80 seats and two big rings where the fighters would spar and upstairs was the the um where they would work out on the heavy bags and the punching bags and it was just a great experience and i write about it and i try and recreate that experience for for the reader yeah absolutely it's it's it's, it's really interesting i mean uh talk a little bit i mean I, what i found interesting was just uh, the, the the history of stillman's gym and and, and how it evolved uh, so talk about that a little bit well uh there was um a well-known gym in New York called uh, Grupps, and that's where Benny Leonard trained and Jack Dempsey and uh, um, all, all the, the, the top fighters uh, in New York at the time trained there. And so this was, at the time, this was were, in the teens, what? right? This was in the teens. This is in the teens. This is, we're talking 19, uh, nine, I think the gym opened about 1910. Wow, okay? wow. And it was very, you know, it was a busy gym, and... Uh, uh, and at the time, there were many Jewish, Italian, uh, African-American fighters, but mostly Jewish, Italian, and Irish. They made up uh, most of the fighters in New York City at the time. And there were many Jewish stars. And unfortunately, the owner of Grupps, uh, when he was a drinker, when he got drunk, he, was, uh, he would started spouting these anti-Semitic remarks, you know, and so on. And it was kind of stupid because about the 60% of his clientele were Jewish boxers. Wow. So Benny Leonard said, that's enough. He got together the Jewish boxers, and he says, look, I know there's a small gym uh, uh, in Midtown. Let's go there. So all the boxers followed him to a small gym run by the Marshall Stillman movement. And uh, when uh, other fighters learned that Benny Leonard was working out in this gym, uh, they followed him there, and the fans also followed him there. Well, just so uh, just, you know uh, it, just, uh, just, yeah. just for people who may not know who Benny Leonard is, uh, uh, tell right, people who right. Benny Leonard was. Benny Leonard was lightweight champion uh, uh, from 1917 to 1925. He's one of the greatest fighters of all time. Tremendously popular fighter, um, and usually rated amongst, as I say, amongst the ten greatest fighters who ever lived uh, by uh, boxing experts. So um, he was a very important uh, personality and um, in the sport at the time. So the gym couldn't hold the number of spectators and fighters who were working out there. So the owner was a man named Lou Ingber, who decided to uh, rent a loft building uh, on uh, 54th Street and 8th Avenue in 1921, I believe it was. And within a few years, Stillman's, and it became known as Stillman's Gym, became the number one uh, um, training center for boxers in the United States. <laughs> well, and, also, also the one yeah. part you're leaving out there, when, when you say the Marshall Stillman movement, I don't think people know what that is. It's, it was, back in the day, it was, it was, what was his name, Alpheus Gear? Was that the guy who, who kind of started the Marshall Stillman movement? I, I, there were two two uh, millionaires who started it, and their idea was to create a place where um, young boys and teenagers, uh, uh, you know, who could get into trouble on the streets, to to bring them into an environment where they could uh, exercise and 
just maybe, you know, not just learn boxing, but other sports as well. And it was, um, it was, they were altruistic and it was, uh, it was a good idea. And, um, and the, the, when, when, uh, when the, the gym was started by Lou Ingber, uh, the, it was still part of the Marshall Stillman movement, but he bought out those two uh, people. He bought them out, but, and the gym re- retained the name as Stillman's. It became just Stillman's right. gym. Right. So, um, and in fact, uh, Lou Ingber, everybody kept calling him Mr. Stillman <laughs> and he got tired of correcting anybody and sa- everybody and saying, no, it's it, my name is uh, Mr. Ingber. Finally, he, he said the hell with it. He changes. He, he actually legally changed his name to Lou Stillman. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> So it, you know, and, and this gym, uh, um, which had two floors, it was two from the, uh, it, it, at its height had over 400 fighters, uh, working out there. They were members uh, in the gym. And, um, if you wanted, you know, it became a, a, a tourist attraction in, in, in boxing's heyday in the twenties to the fifties. And uh, as much of, uh, for many people, as much of a tourist attraction as the Statue of Liberty or Radio City Music Hall, uh, they, they would go to Stillman's gym. There they would see the top fighters working out. Yeah, it's great. I, you, you mentioned in, in the book that, you know, I mean, the, 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 you know, the number of Hall of Famers who trained there was Benny Leonard, Jack Johnson, Jack Dempsey, Tony Canzanieri, Henry Armstrong, Sandy Sadler, Bo Jack, Johnny Dundee. You know, Kid Gavilan, Rocky Graziano. I mean, just just an absolute well, like Hall of Fame list of fighters who 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 trained at one time at Stillman's. And don't forget it, when when fighters came to Madison Square Garden from out of town, they usually came you know uh, right the week before to publicize about they would they would work out in Stillman's gym, and there was always a sign out front as to which uh, uh, main event fighters or champions were working out that day. So, yeah, where was, know, was at, at that point? Because I know the garden moved to like right around there, like I think in the late '60s. But yeah. where was the garden located? No, 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 no. The garden. Um, they, there were there were four Madison Square Garden. Right. Uh, the 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 second Madison Square Garden, where boxing was a uh, main feature, was actually located on Madison Square, near Madison Square, which is on Twenty Fifth Street. Right. Uh, I believe it was off Park Avenue, and and it held twelve thousand people. Dempsey fought there, Leonard fought there, and when boxing was legalized in New York State, uh, they realized, uh, the great visionary uh, boxing promoter, Tex Rickard, realized that they needed a larger arena. And so, in 1925, Madison Square Garden, a new Madison Square Garden with seating capacity of 20,000, opened up on 50th Street and 8th Avenue. And it just so happened that Stillman's was located four blocks uptown right. from Madison right. Square Garden. Right. Very convenient. Right. It's funny, uh, you know, when 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 things are a little more normal and we don't have a pandemic going on, my, my offices are in Midtown. They're on 50th and 8th as our uh, showtimes. So <laughs> it's like right around the corner oh. from where the old garden was. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that, that, that was the area. It, yeah. it was great. That's awesome. Now you also talk about uh, you know the great trainers that 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 worked out of uh, Stillman's, like Whitey Bimstein, Freddie Brown, Ray Arcel. Talk, talk about those guys a little bit. Yes, well, 
you know, boxing at that time was an industry uh, in which people devoted full time to it. Um, there were no the trainers, you know, who were successful, and there were there were a good number of them. That was their full time job. They lived, ate, and slept boxing. Okay, that's what they did. And because New York City was the epicenter of the sport, it had um, more fighters, more fight clubs, more gymnasiums. Um, it drew uh, many of the, the best trainers to, to the city. And um, what developed was you had, uh, take Ray Arcel, okay? Ray Arcel was a young man, amateur boxer, uh, was in love with boxing. He became a, a student of one of these top trainers. And he, this trainer mentored um, Ray Arcel. And as he told me, uh, there was boxing every night, every night of the week except Sunday night in New York City. And he would go around, you know, working with this trainer, learning, learning the ropes, learning from everybody. And it was just an environment where boxing was everywhere and there was a lot of creativity around, especially in the 20s. You know, I, I compare it. I compare it to the Renaissance you know, of, <laughs> of the, the Middle Ages. I, when something happened, all there was a confluence of circumstances that came together. You know, the great uh, wave of immigrants who came into this country uh, from the 1880s. Uh, well, first it started with the Irish uh, from you know in the in the uh, mid 19th century, and who brought a tradition of boxing with them, and and then it then you had the great wave of Jewish immigrants and Italian immigration from Eastern and, and Southern Europe. Um, so you had, and of course, boxing is a sport of the poor and it's an urban sport. And you had these uh, huge numbers of immigrants, poor, looking to, to, to just get work and make money. And boxing was there, it was everywhere. So you had a, you had a lot of tough kids growing up, street kids, and it was easy for them. To, not all of them were going to become world champions, of course, but a lot of them went into the sport to make money. And um, just to give you an example, um, in the research I did for my first book, The Arc of Boxing, um, The Rise and Decline of the Sweet Science, I, I found out that the, in 1927 there were 2,000 licensed professional boxers who lived in New York State. 2,000. Right. Um, it it went down a little bit, you know, in in the in the forties when fighters, you know, were drafted into the army and so on. But there's still by by 1946 there was still about 500 uh, licensed boxers. However, today, okay, and over the past ten years, there have never been rarely more than 150 licensed professional boxers in New York State. Compare that to 2000. Hmm. There were dozens of licensed fight clubs that were small arenas uh, within a 10 mile radius of Times Square. Um, today, uh, we, have, I, we don't have any actually in New York. We have fight shows that take place maybe um, you know, once a month, twice a month uh, throughout the state. But um, 
the activity is much less. But getting back to the heyday, there were there were so many boxers and there were so many trainers, and there was a lot of a lot of knowledge that was being passed on to um, to men like Ray Arcel, Whitey Bimstein, Freddie Brown, you know, and 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 that's the way it was. That's interesting. Another thing you described about uh, Stillman's was, a, and you alluded to this a little bit, but that it was the best show in town. Um, you know, where where people, you know, for fifty cents could come in and watch like some of the best, you know, boxers in the world, you know, work out or spar. So, talk about that a little exactly. bit. Exactly. Well, yes, you, you'd see. Uh, uh, let's say uh, Archie Moore came into town, you know, to fight, uh, and so he'd be working out there. Um, it, the, the the thing about Stillman's was because it was such a busy gym that managers brought their fighters there there because they knew they could get sparring, right. and sparring is extremely important for a fighter in training. The right sparring partners, and there were many to choose from in in, in Stillman's. So that was a big draw that you, you could get the sparring that you needed uh, in in the gym, and. Uh, uh, what was the other part of the question you asked me? Kurt? Oh, just just yeah. just that there there were you know like uh, you know, it was just that you know the, the, it was the the best show in town. You know you had great. Oh time. oh yes. Also, what I want because it was a big attraction. You you could go into uh, uh, Stillman's, and again it was in the Broadway Theater District. So many times you would see um, famous actors who were there. Uh, you know just to, to watch what was happening. And you'd recognize them. You know, Jimmy Cagney might show up right. to watch, uh, you know, uh, Henry Armstrong work out or something. So it was it was just an interesting place to be. And, and it was uh, there was just a lot of activity, a lot of noise. And and uh, you could just stare at these interesting faces. As I said, the the. I, there were more broken noses in Stillman's in one place than you'd, you'd find anywhere else in the world. <laughs> so it was it was just a, a good show. Absolutely. For 50 cents, you couldn't beat it. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, you actually, uh, you know, trained there for a little while, right? So, so talk, I about, did. talk about some of your experiences there. Oh, wow. I, yeah, I, I felt so fortunate. I mean, it's like being the bat boy for the Yankees or something. <laughs> there I was, a boxing fan, and surrounded by these you know, fighters, and I used to work out and train near them. I would see them. Uh, you know, uh, uh, say uh, Joey Archer was fighting on TV in, in two weeks. Well, there he was, right next to me, punching the speed bag. You know, or Dick Tiger. Or Emil Griff. I saw Emil Griffith there. He was just starting out. He had a less than a, a half a dozen fights and I used to watch him work out there and uh, um, I, I remember it, the, another thing that old time fighters would show up at Stillman's they, they would show up they like uh, uh, occasionally Jack Dempsey would show up and, and um, uh, once I saw the great um, uh, Kid Norfolk now most people don't know Kid Norfolk uh, but he was a great Hall of Fame fighter who uh, was a light heavyweight and heavyweight contender in the early 1920s, late teens, early 20s. And my trainer said, would you like to meet Kid Norfolk? And I had heard the, 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 the name. I, I was familiar because he had fought, you know, Harry Greb five times and, and these other great fighters. And he was a black fighter. Unfortunately, never got a shot at the title. 
And my trainer said, ask him any question you want. And there was this uh, fighter. He, he, he looked like he was made out of steel, to be honest with you. He was like <laughs> ramrod straight. He was wearing a black overcoat. I still remember. And, and he had trouble with his, as many fighters did with his eyesight. So he had dark glasses on. And I didn't know what to say. I said, uh, well, uh, Mr. Norfolk, um, what is the most important thing in boxing? And I remember he, he took a stance, you know, on the on-guard stance. He put his, his left foot forward, lifted up his hands, and he said, I remember he had a very deep voice. He said, balance, son, balance. <laughs> I never forgot that, balance. And any, any fighter who is worth his weight will tell you balance is the most important thing. You have, without balance, you can't be a good boxer. So I also saw Ingemar Johansson showed up one day to work out, the heavyweight champion. So you never knew, you know, what surprises you might experience at Stillman's. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, Kid Norfolk, my 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 old buddy, may he rest in peace, Johnny Boz. I remember him uh, talking about uh, Kid Johnny, Norfolk. Yes. You know, and he fought hard yeah, to Johnny get him knew, into the Boxing Hall of Fame. <laughs> well, you know, Johnny not only knew Kid Norfolk, he became friendly with his daughter, and um, and he actually, you know, corresponded with uh kid norfolk but um yeah johnny was a great great fan of the sport great historian absolutely absolutely so eventually stillman's closes in in uh 1961 so so um yeah well i mean i guess uh so i guess lou lou stillman had sold it at that point in time so how how did that come about yeah lou stillman lou stillman uh sold it to a real estate uh outfit and um, it continued. It continued for uh, another two years, um, uh, and uh, it, under the man- uh, the Irving Kona, uh, a boxing manager, well-known boxing manager, um, managed the gym. And I, that's when I trained there. I trained there the last two years of its existence. And when when the lease was up. Uh, unfortunately, it closed down in December of 1961, and uh, the wrecking crew came shortly thereafter, and that was the end of Stillman's. Hmm. But uh, so, well, that was around the know, time. Now it, it kind of coincided with like the decline of, of of club show boxing around that time, right? I mean, it's crazy because you think the 40s and 50s, like you said, it was kind of a golden age of the sport where. Mm-hmm. Although you know the war obviously interrupted it, but um, but you had so many great fighters, great champions. You know, um, boxing was a major sport. You had a lot of people participating. So, so you know, what what in, in can you go into you know how like late fifties, early sixties, like you know the, sure. the decline starts. Sure. Well, you know, it, it, one of my friends, uh, a great historian named named Bill Goodman. Uh, brought this to my attention. Um, he he said that the decline of boxing, the beginning, the beginning. He says, "I'll tell you the date." I said, "What a date? An actual date?" He says, "Yeah, December seventh, nineteen forty-one." He says, "When Pearl Harbor was bombed." He says that that changed the sport as it changed everything. Right. He said because what you had at that time, uh, of course, you had. Um, many fighters, active fighters being drafted into the army or, or volunteering to go into the armed forces. And in fact, 
four world champions froze their titles because right. they were in the armed forces, you know, Army, Navy, Marines. And um, which so at that time was half happened, was half the weight divisions, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Half the weight divisions. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, you had, you know, the, the, the promoters um, had to scramble for, for fighters to fill cards, you know, and, and to fill main. So a lot of club fighters who normally wouldn't get a main event were promoted to main events because there were less fighters around. Okay. And there were, you still had some great fighters around, but there were, you know, a, a lot of the contenders and as you say, four of the champions were in the service. So what happened was that these club fighters began to fill cards and um, the audience, by the way, boxing was popular during the war. You know, people were looking for diversion, looking for entertainment. So uh, you had um, the, uh, the, the, the arenas were, were being filled because people wanted just to take their mind off things would, would come to the fights. But they wouldn't see the quality of the fights. Um, so what you had was some of these club fighters and club fights are an entertainment. They're good. But uh, a lot of the fighters don't measure up in terms of the the quality of of say you know um, uh, the the best fighters, and but the audience got used to it. the The audience got used to that type of of um, action, and um, the the stylists, the ones who would you know stand back and jab your head off and move around, they gave way to the to the the fighters. I'll give you an example. For the first time, the the promoters started putting on the on the posters. So and so fights, bell, throws punches from bell to bell. You know, <laughs> right. you know so it, it there used to be um, more appreciation for the 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 technique and the science, but which is understandable. Uh, you got the audience becoming excited about a Bo Jack or a Rocky Graziano. You know who was active, you know, during the war. And so that's what they began to get used to. And um, this this sort of lasted beyond uh, the war years. Um, however, you still had great fighters. Um, but the fighters who were being developed in the post-war years began, you know, the numbers of, of great fighters began to diminish. And later, when, when television... Uh, became uh, very popular in the 1950s. When television became very popular in the 1950s and people could watch boxing five nights a week, sometimes six nights a week, and the great boxers appearing for free on TV, the local clubs, the local arenas couldn't compete with that. So many of the local boxing clubs went out of business. Okay, and these this was boxing's farm system, right? For developing new talent, so that combined to also um, affect the sport. Um, and because the local arenas were going out of business, um, the trainers uh, were not you know not getting as much work as they had in the past. Even some managers, you know, there, there, were let, there were fewer fighters because of the GI Bill. Many fighters coming out, you know, who survived the war, many men who survived the war, who might have taken up boxing as a means to uh, employment, 
now had other opportunities, many other opportunities, because of the GI Bill and the booming right. post-war economy. Right. So all this combined, you know, television, closing of the clubs, uh, post-war, booming post-war economy, the GI Bill, which gave not only a chance for college education, but also technical training. So uh, where you had used to have a lot of Jewish, Irish, and Italian boxers, now they were leaving the sport. So, but who were the, 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 the population that wasn't getting those benefits just yet, you know, were the African-American and Hispanic fighters still had a lot of opportunities closed off to them. Right. So they became the major players in the sport. Okay. Well, you also, you you also had a a great migration, uh, in the fifties with, uh, kind of the, the more commercialization and popularity of air travel. I know that New York City, you know, in, in, in the 50s, that's when, you know, a lot of there was a lot of uh, Puerto Rican immigration to, to New York and a lot of great fighters uh, coming over then, too. So, again, it's like, you know, the, the, the new immigrants are the ones who kind of, you know, take up uh, take up the, the, the sport and are the, are the hungry guys who, who get into it and uh, become the top fighters. Very true. Uh, that That's so true. And in the 40s and 50s, you had the great migration uh, from Puerto Rico, and you developed Carlos Ortiz, the great Jose Torres, right. you know, great Puerto Rican fighters. And then, of course, it's continuing to this day. We still have, uh, you know, mixed in with the East Europeans and, and others. But you're right. Um, boxing is a sport of the poor. Right. And if you want to see, you know, who's struggling at the moment, just look who the boxers are. Right. Okay. That right. will tell you. Right. So you had, I mean, you had Italian fighters stuck it out, you know, the, the longest, uh, but the, the, their numbers were diminished greatly from previous decades, you know, and right. uh, and so that's 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 how it was. Right, right, right. That's kind of, and it's interesting too. Just thinking back, like you know, when when you look at the sport today, it's dominated by boxing promoters who have television deals. So kind of, mm-hmm. you know, back then, I mean, obviously in the 50s, you had the IBC, <laughs> which, uh, you know, yes, eventually yes. was became a monopoly that was that was broken up by the government. And, you know, there was right. a lot of mob involvement with that. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But it, it seems to me, I mean, you know, they, they were big, but, you know, um, the the actual clubs were more the promoters, right? I mean, you had your Tex Rickards, you had you know a, a few big promoters, but it was mostly like Look, local clubs, right? Who who promoted the local the clubs? The local clubs were the lifeblood of the sport. Right. Okay. You had, I mean, you could pick up any ring magazine from the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties into the sixties, and you'd see you know boxing in Ohio, boxing in Michigan, uh, boxing in Florida boxing in LA, but every city had its fight clubs and every city had its promoter. Boxing is closer to show business. Okay. Right, right. In structure than it is to organize other organized sport. Other well, boxing is disorganized, but other sports. Okay. Right, right. Boxing is much closer to show business. It's a freelance sport, right? right? You had, uh, uh, operators, uh, you know, there are people running nightclubs, the year of nightclubs, you know, cities had nightclubs and they would bring in, uh, you know, talent, the same thing, these promoters, they would promote fight local talent, they'd import talent. And, um, and they, as I say, they were the farm system for developing, uh, the new crop of fighters. And the old days you had, you know, uh, you had the promoter and the manager were separate. 
Okay, they each the promoters were trying to put on put on the good fights to attract the audience. The managers were trying to put on to match their fighter, um, not get him you know overmatched, but put him against somebody that would be a good match for him that he could learn from perhaps. And the promoter might argue with them and say, look, no, we, this other fighter will make a better fight. And one manager would go to another manager said, you got a guy, I got a guy. Let's, let's get together and make a fight. Okay. That's the way it was. When the IBC was in control, they were, um, they coincided with the rise of televised boxing and they monopolized televised boxing and they didn't want any competition, and um, they were a monopoly. And uh, you know, they, they one they, there's not much good you can say about them. One thing they did that was good was they kept the sport organized because they were the the most powerful entity in the sport. So, um, they, you know, if you know, they, they, another organization uh, tried to be in competition with them they didn't have a chance all right also the reason why they were backed by uh organized crime right (laughs) right exactly that was a big factor that was a big factor (laughs) there but um because they were greedy and they weren't interested in the future of the sport um just interested in getting as much money as they could and of course they would fix fights occasionally they would fix title fights and, and, you know, word got around, there were congressional investigations that didn't do the sport any good. Right. So yes, television made millions of new fans, but on the other side, it destroyed the clubs, uh, the farm system. It put many people in boxing out of business and the IBC would get uh, front managers to, uh, to front, uh, as you know, to control the fighters they, that the IBC actually controlled. And so it was, it eventually you know, just became uh, a situation where it it hurt the sport more than helped the sport. And um, the one good thing you could say is there were only eight world champions. <laughs> so we right. at least everybody knew who the champions were. Um, and I, I, you know, say that I often say, you know, what, who did more damage to the sport? Was it the, 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 um, the crime backed IBC, you know, that monopoly or later on in the late seventies, early eighties, when the sport was taken over by, um, the, the likes of King and Aram and, and their lackeys in the, uh, uh what do you call it? The, uh, sanctioning organizations. Uh, and all of a sudden now we had 30, 40, 50 world champions, 60 world champions, four different organizations rating their, having their own rating system. Uh, it, it, people didn't even know who the world champions were in many cases. So it became disorganized. Uh, they began fixing fights through matchmaking to keep their champions holding on to the title. It, it became really something awful. And by the mid nineties, it was just the total mess. So I, I say that, that you could say that th- those people were more damaging to boxing. Okay, not not the IBC. The IBC was terribly that, but but later on, the sanctioning organizations and uh, you know uh, the 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 crooked promoters, because they they created a new culture for boxing, and there was no turning back. When the IBC went went out of business, 
you still had bo- the organization of boxing was not damaged in the sense that you still had the champions. You know, you, you had eight world champions. It wasn't being split off into many other, you know, uh, uh, recognition of many other um, champions. So there was an organization there. You had ten contenders. You, the ten contenders were recognized usually with two entities, uh, the National Boxing Association and the Ring Magazine. Both had no interest in, uh, in you know, getting payoffs to rate fighters, at least in the before the 1970s. No, that, the fighters are rated according to um, the consensus of their ability. So in many cases, the NBA ratings were exactly the same as the ring ratings. And they were trusted. That all changed in the 1980s, completely changed, where you had payoffs to these organizations and, and the promoters paying off the sanctioning bodies to move a fighter up in the ratings. It, it just was a mess. And it continues to this day. However, things have changed because boxing is affected by the culture that surrounds it. Now we're in the technological revolution. So you have... I. I you know, I thought, could it get any worse than it was? Well, you might say, yeah, <laughs> because now you have separate, like, fiefdoms right. of, of promotional groups that have their own fighters and promoting their own. And I doubt we'll ever see the best matched against the best again, only in rare instances. I mean, will Crawford, the Crawford... Um, Fight against um, Errol Spence. What was his name? Errol Spence. Huh? Errol Spence. Errol Spence. Yeah. Yeah. Now that fight should have taken place a year ago. Right. Okay. Right. And I wrote in my book, in this book, I wrote, I guarantee you that fight will never, will either it will never take place or will take place too late when mm. they're both past their prime. Mm. Just like Pacquiao and um, Mayweather, mm. that fight should have been staged five years earlier. Right, right. Four years earlier, it, it was staged that the you know yeah it was it was an interesting fight or you know it was good to get them together but it that never would have it rarely would have happened in the old days it, it happened you know it was the exception to the rule now it's the rule fighters the good fighters don't face that's a, that's what kind of sport is that what, what kind of sport is that where the best don't fight the best yeah believe me where the it's... Best it, it's so you know every other sport is organized so that the best compete against the best to decide you know the champion and you know yeah. boxing still hasn't figured it out. I mean it's it's interesting. No. You know, I, I had this conversation uh, at least a little bit of it with Herb uh, Herb Goldman and uh, you know and, and it's just you know there's just been like a series of of missed opportunities because when you talk about the NBA, the the National Boxing Association, that was an organization of boxing commissions, and it was you know started in the 1920s. But but even then, you know the it was kind of formed because the New York State Athletic Commission held so much power that the other states kind of wanted to to to, to get together and, and and have an organization that you know kind of was a, an offset that. So you always well, and the New York, go ahead. Yeah, New York State was invited to join right, the NBA. Right, right. But New York State had a big ego, you know, and they <laughs> said, "We're the center." No, no, we 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 run our own show. Right. But still, 
things were organized. It was a rare occurrence that you had the NBA champion and the New York State champion. And inevitably, they would get together, right. as they did when Zale fought at Georgie Abrams, when... Um, Ike Williams, uh, Bob Montgomery, right. Bob Montgomery. Right. They, they, would, they, they would have a quick tournament. They, you know, they would get together, and they would name one champion for right. the good of the sport. And why was that? Because the NBA was not in it for the money. Right. Do you know what their sanctioning fee was in the 1930s? What was it? Uh, you know what the sanctioning fee is today? It's in the, it's in, uh, you know, it's like uh, three or four, whatever it is, percentage of the fighters, and and the, the it's a, it's a big fee out of the fighters' purse. You know, like well, 30, no, 20, the promoter, 000. the promoter has to pay a fee. The judges get paid more. The 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 fighters have to pay three percent. The fighters it's... have to pay a fee. What, what do you think the NBA charged as a fee? To, to to the promoters and let, the, let, you know what it was. Let's say back in the was the, it, the 20s or or in the 1930s, 1930s and the 1940s, maybe a dollar. It was one. It was oh yes, one dollar. <laughs> it was a token. It was one dollar. Right. Because right. they were all volunteers. Right. They 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 were there un, incredibly for the good of the sport, you know, and they they were they were fans, and they, they there was no monetary interest in it. Today, the 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 uh, was it WBC, WBA, or the, these organizations function as money makers. Bo- as boxing is a as cash businesses. cow for them. Yeah, it's a business. They, yeah, they, don't, they don't care about the sport. Doesn't mean anything to them. They're in it for the money. The New York State Athletic Commission didn't charge any fees. There was no sanctioning fee. They were the New York State Athletic Commission, and they were prided themselves on you know trying to to run the sport correctly. You know, and and that's why that's why Blinky Palermo could never get a license in New York State. Right, right. And yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah, because Herb had uh, you know, he he released like a four volume set of 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 like an encyclopedias on the sport that he was a little yes. disappointed because it it's supposed to have fighters' records in it, but the way it was formatted, it's just like unreadable. But like the but like volume four has this timeline of boxing. And I was really fascinated by it because it had like, you know, the NBA, you know, reached out to the EBU at, at one point in time to, to kind of get it together and, and you know, right. you know and, and, and form an alliance. And, you know, the New York State Athletic Commission went to the meeting but decided not to join right. and all this and that. Right. But like you right. said, I mean, right. for the most part, yes, okay, the, the New York State Athletic Commission and, and the NBA occasionally would have different champions. The NBA, you know, would, would strip fighters of titles every once in a while if they didn't defend against the, the leading available contender. But um but for the most part, yeah, you, you had if you know if there wasn't one champion, you know, within a year or so there would there would be because these guys, A, they fought a lot more, but they also like, you know, they wanted to make money, so they'd fight they'd fight the best out there, you know. Absolutely. And, they wanted to fight the titles. Money. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and and you know, you're not gonna you know, fool anybody by by some. Occasionally, it was a two bit organization that would start out and say, "We're going to name this guy champion." They completely ignored. It just right. went away quickly. Okay, right. Right. Uh, look, it, it's boxing. We have to understand it's boxing. It's never it's never going to be perfect. Okay, but when comparing those days when there was there was occasional yes, the EBU would occasionally name their own fighter as champion. Right. Okay, it generally did not get the recognition that uh, and and you know America was had the power then okay but it was nothing like today to say oh it was bad then 
and say, oh, that's it's the same thing today. That's totally wrong. Right. That's completely wrong. Right. It, it, so it, false it, equivalency. There's no, yeah. <laughs> there's no equivalency. Yeah, to it. Yeah. It, 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 it was it, any problems they had then in terms of naming the champions uh, or the top contenders or whatever pales in comparison to the crap and the garbage and the disorganization that that boxing is today. Okay, nothing to compare to it. To to make an excuse that oh it was always this way, then you then you're part of the problem. You're not part of any solution. Right. Right. Well, one one thing I found interesting in 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 your book to, that 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 goes to this and and also kind of leads to, um, you know, something I've I'm always mentioning on my my podcast is tournaments. Um, you had you profile a fighter who you know I'm, I'm sure not many people have heard of and and Benny uh, Valgar or Val Valgar Benny Valgar yeah Valgar there Valgar. you go Valgar Benny Valgar who uh, Ray Arcel I guess Ray Arcel trained him. And and said that he was, you know, it skill wise, he was equipped, you know, he was like right up there with Benny Leonard, but but didn't quite hit as hard. Um, right. right. But uh, but Benny was involved, uh, you know, when 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 Benny Leonard retired, you know, the New York State Athletic Commission sponsored a tournament and, right. you know, they sent out invitations to like, you know, <laughs> the crazy thing is, I mean, this was literally like the NCAA tournament, like they sent out. Uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. invitation was like fifty fighters, and eventually, uh, yeah, like like fifty of the top lightweights in the world, they were invited <laughs> to participate in this tournament. Imagine that. Uh, it's, that's Imagine, cool. if that was today. It's March was today, Madness. And, and, <laughs> and, yeah, right. If Leonard, if that had happened today, you would quickly have at least four or five. You know. Different fighters being recognized as champions, and they never get together <laughs> to fight each other. That, that's why I said the 1920s. It, it, it was a remarkable time for the boxing, you know, that's when it just, you know, really hit its stride. And, um, that tournament, which, which I, I go into detail in my first book, um, and then mention it in relation to Benny Valger, because he was, he was favored to win the tournament actually. Right. Um, and he was a brilliant, brilliant boxer. Um, unfortunately there's no film of him, but, um, he uh, entered the tournament along with, I don't know how many others, uh, at least there were the ones who eventually joined the tournament. There were over 50, I think, I don't know if there were 50, at least 30 of them or whatever. So they had this round-robin tournament, and eventually they crowned a new lightweight champion. That, that, they crowned one lightweight champion, you know. And that lightweight champion, uh, that the, 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 his predecessors, his successors, rather, remained one champion until like the mid-40s when there was a little dispute there with um, Bob Montgomery, as you said. But again, quickly settled. And But that's the way it was. And there were other tournaments like that, even as late as the 1950s, uh, late 50s, um, when um, Sandy Sadler retired. There was a tournament for, to determine a new featherweight champion. And, and Hogan Kid Bassey. And wait a minute, wait a minute. In 1968, when they, when, uh, when Ali, uh, when his title was stripped, they had the tournament to determine a new heavyweight champion. Remember that? Absolutely, absolutely. Bob yeah. Aaron promoted it. That's right. That's right. And and you had you had Joe Frazier, uh, who who didn't want to go into the tournament. Right. So here you had a a, a, a a see boxing was still more or less organized then. It was before the bums entered into it um, that we mentioned before. So in '68, New York State, like they did in the 
you know, before they said, no, no, we'll, we're going to have our own tournament. <laughs> so Joe Frazier, Joe Frazier won recognition by them, okay? And Jimmy Ellis won the tournament, the right. eight-man tournament. But what happened? Less than two years later, Ellis is fighting Frazier to determine a heavyweight champion. Right, right. Right? Yeah, I mean, so, that, yeah. that's, that's how every other sport works. There, there's, there's tournaments, there's playoffs, they right. determine a champion. Right. And, and as you say, like throughout the history of boxing, you know, boxing has, you know, when it did it, when it did things the right way, that's how it happened. They had play, you know, when there was not one champion, when one retired or moved up in weight, they would have a massive tournament. I mean, I, like I, I was telling you before we, uh, before we started recording, you know, I, I bought the uh, NBA yearbook from 1932. Mm-hmm. And I, the one thing I discovered was like, wow. They had tournaments, you know, in, in like the lightweight tournament in, in 25, they, in 1931, um, you know, Mickey Walker vacated the middleweight title and, and they had a massive tournament, um, you know, mm-hmm. where 25 contenders were invited, 18 accepted. And because guys right. fought every month, they got it done, you know, within a couple of months. They got 18 guys right. fighting each other and, you know, William uh, Gorilla Jones won the title. And what's even more interesting is that he beat George Nichols in that tournament. Nichols comes off that loss. And because they stripped Maxie Rosenblum a few months later, he joins the light heavyweight tournament and he wins it. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. he wins it. Uh, He wins it. But eventually uh, Maxie became uh, sole, you know, owner of that title. Right, right, right. uh, But you see how, how, and again, the fans were more knowledgeable then, you know, and and they, they just... Uh, there were, they knew what was going on and, and things tended to, tended to, um, just, you know, be settled in a way that, 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 that there was one champion that, that was always going towards it. It would, it would, it would, re, it would reset to that, you know, it got off a little bit, but it would always would reset to the, to the one champion because also the. The fans wanted it. The fans demanded it, and it meant money. Also, right. you know, both right. fighters. Right, right, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, you know, and you know, just you know, uh, bringing it to, to to present day. I mean, the the one thing that I, I really like that's going on in the sport right now is the World Boxing Super Series, where you have, um, you know, Cali Sauerland and, and his investors, you know, trying to bring some organization, trying to you know what they they're calling it, you know, because it's in Europe. Uh, the, the mm-hmm. organization in Europe, they're calling it, you know, the uh, the Champions League, which is like the, you know, in, in soccer in Europe, you know, the, the best teams from the, the European leagues get together and kind of have a tournament mm-hmm. and, and, and see. So it's like a, you know, it's like a Champions League of, of boxing. But, you know, it's not a novel concept. You know, boxing has had tournaments throughout, you no, know, but, its time. And, and, and I think it's just a great but, idea, you know, especially now but, with 50 million champs. You need to know who the one guy is. You know, let's let's yeah. get back to those days. Right, right. I agree with you. But the Sauerland and and promoting this tournament between is. But again, what about the other organizations? Uh, in other words, is this among every the top fighters in that division, or are there some top fighters who are owned by other, you know, uh, corporations that aren't involved in this? Well, with it, the the great thing with Cali though is that. The invitations go out to everybody like they're not taking options. They're not, you know, they're not, you know, trying to control the fighters. They're just saying, get in the tournament and let's see who's the best. And 
And but it, how many are going into that tournament? I mean, it's a bit like in the cruiserweight division, everyone went in, you know, the, because, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. none of the, the, the major promoters here in, in the U.S. control any of the top cruisers. But, right. you know, right. with, with the other divisions, you know, you had uh, the junior welterweight division, which, which recently uh, had a tournament. Josh Taylor won it. You had, you know, mm-hmm. I think a couple of the champions went in, but top rank, top rank has basically refused to put their, their guys in it. Um, obviously, yeah. they have a big TV deal. There's business reasons. Right. But, you know, in, in a way, I mean, that did bother me. But then when I, you know, you look in history and I'm looking at the NBA's thing. And, and even in, in your book, you said Sid Terrace, one of the top contenders, was just like, you know, I'm not going to go into tournament. I'll wait to fight the winner. <laughs> and, uh, right. you know, and, and in the middleweights and the light heavyweights, you, you, mm-hmm. there, there were opt outs from there, too. Like some of the top contenders were like, yeah, I don't really want to get in this tournament. Yeah. I'll, I'll just fight the winner. Right. You know? Right. But, uh, but again, but for, again, there was only. They only crowned one champion right. and until until you can crown one champion for I don't like the seventeen divisions, but even if you're going to do it, make it for seventeen. I like twelve divisions. Okay, I think seventeen is ridiculous. But if you're going to if you're going to make the sport, if you're going to give it some uh, semblance of of organization where it's it's it, it, you know you you have to have just you have one World Series winner, you have one. You know, Super Bowl winner. One you know, medalist. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So until you have that, it, it's it's not going to, you know, it's no good. And boxing needs that now more than ever. Right, right. It's no good. Yeah, you know, in my opinion, it needs it because it'll always have its fans. Its fan base, by the way, could be much higher, much higher than it is. But it'll always have fans. And if they feel there's enough people out there who are paying money to, to pay for what they're putting on, then there will be no, there, there never will be again one champion per weight class. Right. It may never happen again. Right. Uh, it, so, you know, where are we going? Um, you know, maybe there'll be some remedies here and there, but um, if you want to give it, uh, you know, uh, some... Uh, recognition that it's operating the way it should be. There has to be one champion per weight division, right? And, and right. not, and I don't mean, and not all these ridiculous, you know, um, mini uh, regional titles, you know, that that just confuse things even more. And that's just to get sanctioning fees. It's absurd, right? No, I I agree. I mean, you know, there's there's the other side of the argument. You know, as as a manager, I mean, obviously, my my fighter made more money if he had a title belt, but. I, you know, I don't. You know, the, the sanctioning bodies can create as many belts as they want. I don't. I don't care, as long as if, if we had these tournaments. You know, I mean, my argument is, you know, each weight division should go like, you know, once every three years there should be a tournament. You know, and you determine the mm-hmm. best. That guy gets right. to defend the title for a couple years, right. exploit it. But then, you know, in in three years' time, he's got to get back into the tournament and, and prove he's the best again. You know, I mean, I think. Right. To, to, to me, you know, make it work like the Olympics, you know, and, and, and you've got mm-hmm. the frustration for me was there's more money now, television money in the sport than there's ever been. You know, I mean, right. you had the right. zone spending hundreds of millions of dollars on it and, and ESPN and, and Fox, you know, spending tens of millions of dollars. Like you can't tell me that you couldn't take at least one weight division and like determine, you know, 
the grand champion in, in, in that it, it for each of these networks? I mean, come on. It doesn't. No. Well, they could, but it doesn't matter as long as they're making money. The look, the the manager. I don't blame the manager. His his main function is two things. One, to get as much money for his fighter, and that means him too, as he can. Okay. Right. And to not get his fighter hurt. Right. right? Absolutely. That that's his function. Okay. He is there to guide his to guide the fighter. If and there is a lot of money out there, and I don't blame them for that's not his concern. I'm looking at it right now from a fan's point of view, and I right. say right. I want there to be one champion per division. That's from a fan's point of view, okay? Right. But from the manager's point of view, what does he care? He, you know, if he can make a lot of money for his fighter, fine. That's that's okay. And if there's enough money to go around for everybody, fine. Then it won't change. But uh, I'm looking at it from the fan's point of view, and I look at it from another point of view also that many younger fans don't see because my frame of reference is different. I grew up watching great fighters. I was trained by a master trainer when I was an amateur. Um, I was exposed to Ray Arcel, uh, uh, Freddie Brown. Um, I even, you know, had conversations with um, other old school trainers. And so what I see, what what passes for boxing today, is a really very dumbed down version of the sport. I'm talking about the technical aspects of the sport. Okay. I mean, I I then I'm channel surfing and I come across a fight, and I watch it, a main event, maybe for some title or something, and I'm seeing what the and I'm saying, who is training these guys? Mm. Are they being taught? Anything other than punch pad exercises? Right. What are the what do do I a simple do I ever see a double jab? Right. A double jab, the first thing an amateur learns, a double jab, then move off. Double jab. Rarely see a double jab. It's a jab, you know, waiting. Oh, waiting. Maybe I'll duck, throw one shot. Combinations, rarely. You might see a flurry, but not a combination. The the there are you can count, in my opinion, the number of top trainers in the world today, maybe on the fingers of one hand, mm. who can compare to the old school trainers. You know, some, they might know the basics than some of the other trainers, but they, they cannot te- teach what used to be called the finer points of boxing technique. Nobody taught it to them. They can't teach it to anybody. So what we have, what you watch now, and you can see the difference. I tell, I wrote an article, um, a while back about this, um, there was a great quote by, um, by Hemingway in one of his, on the sun also rises. And the first, he says, uh, he he mentioned the famous trainer whose name was Spider Kelly. And he said, Spider Kelly taught all his fighters to box like featherweights, whether, whether they weighed 125 pounds or 205 pounds. And that's a great line. I love that line. (laughs) Because that's how old school trainers used to train their fighters. They would teach them technique that no matter how much you weighed, you had to know. And I don't see that today in the fighters. And and that's that's why the sport has lost most of its luster for me, aside from the fact that um, the confusion within the sport, you know, I don't see it. Boxing can be much more popular. It would, it would drown out mixed martial arts if it was run properly. I say run properly, but um, 
you know, when I do see a fighter that reminds me a little bit of the old schoolers, that's when I, I'll, I'll take a little bit of interest. But take a fighter like Golovkin, okay? Mm-hmm. Golovkin, when, you know, when he was coming up, uh, now he's already almost 40, but say seven, eight years ago, when I first saw this guy fight, or 10 years ago, I said, oh my gosh, he's setting up punches. He, he's throwing body punches <laughs> with a real purpose. Right. He's setting, he's a, what a great puncher, but he's setting up his power punches. Right. And I got very excited about him, okay? Another guy I liked was Crawford. Yeah. Okay, again, this is a guy, he, he's, you could see it, you know, 50, 60 years ago, he'd be considered a hell of a prospect, okay? Right, right. But again, how much can these guys be developed in the same way they would have been developed and get the seasoning they require and the experience they require today as opposed to had they come up in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, even 60s, okay? When they would get that experience they need and the training they would need. They have it. They've got it. You could see it. They, they could develop into great fighters, but they will never develop into the full potential that they could. It, the current environment doesn't, isn't there for that to happen. Another guy I like is Lomachenko. Right. right. He's outstanding. Outstanding. But again, I saw things in some, I can't remember one of his fights, whether it was the last or the one before, where a guy went nine rounds with him before he got it. But I saw he was he was getting hit with punches he shouldn't have been hit with. Right. Not often, but I'm saying if you put him in with, you know, uh, you know, an Arguello, what, what's going to happen here? You know, some of the others are Carlos Ortiz, you know, a, a seasoned pro. Um, I still like him, but again, he's not, they don't fight often enough. He's had 15 pro fight fights. Often enough. Yeah. I mean, 15 I mean, pro fights, yeah. yeah, like your, your book, the arc of boxing, I think the quote was from, from Teddy where he, I mean, or maybe Teddy just said it on Teddy Atlas uh, on a broadcast where he was mm-hmm. just like, you know, I mean, you know, which if, if you're going for surgery, are you going to go, you know, and, and have surgery by <laughs> someone who's done it hundreds of times or someone who's done it like, you know, 10, 15 times, you know I mean? It's exactly like, you know, exactly. who's better. And yeah, fight well, like the top fighters only fight like twice a year now. And even coming up, they might fight three, four times a year. It's just, there's just not enough work well, to, to get, get well, that experience. What Teddy said in that quote was that he said, yeah, which surgeon we want, but also the reason why you want that experienced surgeon is because during the course of that surgery, something might happen right. that, you know, an artery might burst. Something might happen that because of his vast experience, he'll know how to handle. Right. Okay? Right. Whereas the other guy who has one quarter or one third the experience or less than that, he may not have had that situation. Right. And right. he therefore wouldn't know how to handle it. Right. Okay? As the same thing with boxing. Same I, I saw when, when, when Mayweather, I discussed Mayweather, I devote a whole chapter to him, when, who I consider a very good fighter, but again, has to be looked at in perspective. When this, this outstanding fighter, terrific athlete, very instinctive fighter and, and was in the sport since he's a kid. I saw De La Hoya reaching him with a left jab and go, forcing him to the ropes with the fundamental punch, a left jab. Right. And I said, my goodness, I said, and that fight was a very close fight. 
and the La Jolla had only had one fight in the previous year. Right. And, and I, I said, you know, and, and I saw, I said, he is vulnerable to a guy who's, who is um, active with a left jab and moves him back. The problem with the La Jolla also, it goes to what you're exposed to when the La Jolla had him on the ropes. He didn't really know what to do. When he had him on the ropes, that was the right to really bang him up, to move to the right, hit him with uppercuts, keep him on the ropes. The La Jolla, that was not in his repertoire. So these things are nuances that I like to bring out. And that was, you know, the purpose of my first book, The Ark of Boxing. But the, and, and why I wanted to repeat some of the points in articles that I wrote since then that appear in this book. Um, you know, not everybody ha- is going to agree with me, but I would just like them to be exposed to this information. Right. No, Maybe you still think tw- twice about it. Starting a great conversation. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I, I think a lot, a lot of people would, would, would definitely, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> if they saw you at a bar, they'd be like, what do you mean Ollie Frazier was an overrated, <laughs> the most overrated boxing match? Ollie Frazier 3, I should say, was the most right, o- right, overrated right. boxing match in the history of this book. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that article created more controversy than any <laughs> one I ever wrote. And I understood, because I knew that our Ali has an army of worshipers, okay? <laughs> understood. Right. And, and, but I, I wrote that article, I said, I'm going to be, that, that's the, the myth of the thrill in Manila. I said, I'm trying to be as objective as possible. Right. I'm looking at this not as an Ali fan. I'm not looking at it as a Frazier fan. I'm looking at it as a prize fight. Right. right. And if you're going to call it one of the greatest prize fights of all time, you can say that emotionally, but I'm going to look at this fight dispassionately and break it down. Right. Are you telling me a fight where one of the fighters spends 14, I timed it, 14 minutes on the ropes doing nothing, <laughs> but just in rope-a-dope? Okay. Uh, are you going to tell me that Ali initiated 95 clinches in that fight? 95 clinches. Right. Frazier initiated one. <laughs> but look, I don't want to go over the entire... I think I put out a very good case for me. And again, I understand Ali arouses a, a great amount of passion there. But, and as I say, just like, you know, the saying beauty is in the eye of the beholder, a great fight can be eye in the eye of the beholder. But if you're going to break down a great fight as to what are the ingredients, the true ingredients of a great fight, you know, I'm not knocking it. You know, it, it was a good fight. It was a good fight. But does it, is it compared to other great fights would i rate it in the top 20 absolutely not top 50 absolutely not in fact i say in that chapter that fight was not even the best fight of the 1970s <laughs> yeah i mean okay? yes yeah, especially and I name the other fighters that were better. right yeah, yeah. Well, when you compare it to their first act i mean to me like you know ali frazier won you know i mean when it was called the fight of the century and you know it, it pretty much lived up to the hype i mean just two guys I mean, maybe Ali, obviously coming off the layoff and only two fights, uh, or thir- his third fight in, you know, he may not have been at his very best, but close enough. You it know? doesn't matter. That was <laughs> yeah. a legitimately great fight. It was fight. an unbelievable fight. Yeah, just But that fight, why is, why is the third fight, most people call the, many people call the third fight better than the first fight? Yeah, I mean. It, it's emotion. It's right. emotion. 
I mean, you know, if, if, if you like guys, just, you know, I mean, absolutely, you know, like Frazier just ripping into an older Ali and, and, and uh, you know, older Frazier getting hit flush by yeah. Ali. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, for, for violence and maybe drama and stuff. But, yeah, I mean, the first fight yeah. is clearly a superior fight. Between... If Frazier had won that fight, you wouldn't be hearing about it as much. Right. My opinion. Right. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Well, listen, I mean, I guess one last thing, and, and, and I highly encourage people to, to, to go out and get this book because it's, you know, it's, it's very, you know, some of it's provocative. Some of it's just, you know, you're, you're yeah. learning about the history of the sport. It's amazing. And you have interviews with Archie Moore yeah. and Emil Griffith, Curtis Koch, and a great one with uh, a lesser known fighter, Ted Lowry, who, uh, who yeah. really gives you, gives you a lot in that one. But I wanted to yeah. just, just, just for people who, who uh, want and, to see? What and the you... name of the book is, and the name of the book is the night the referee hit back. Right, right. <laughs> the night the referee hit back. You know, memorable moments uh, from the world of boxing. But just oh, uh, and and by the way, uh, by the way, sorry to interrupt you, but I have a forward by Teddy Atlas. The forward is written by Teddy. Right, Atlas. right, absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. I'm sorry, go ahead. But I was going to say just just to demonstrate because you know similar themes in in your you know first book arc of boxing uh, that that, mm-hmm. that come back here just you know you you know the the finer points are being lost but I, uh, of you know the golden age and and when when fight you know mm-hmm. when boxing was at its peak and I just wanted you if you could to give some recommendations for people to you know maybe search on YouTube like three or four mm-hmm. fights where where you would say like. It, this is this is like peak boxing. This is this is what it should look like. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. In fact, I listed them. I don't want to waste time going to, to my list, <laughs> but I did list them in, in the back of this article. Um, I guess you can't stop the tape. I'd look them up. But, uh, <laughs> well, off the top of your okay. head. Off the top of your head. Okay. 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 I'll tell you what. It's Ike Williams. You can find this on YouTube. I I implore people to go to this fight. Ike Williams versus Enrique Bolanos, B-O-L-A-N-O-S, Enrique Bolanos, Ike Williams, Enrique Bolanos. Um, you'll see boxing there. You may never see this, this type of boxing ever again, okay? It's a, it's a little fuzzy, the film, but you'll see what they're doing. It's not the full fight. It's about 15 or 20 minutes of it, but you'll, you'll get the idea. Beautiful, beautiful, stylistic boxing of two masters another one i like is barney ross one of my favorite one of my favorite fighters in his uh it's on youtube against billy patrol p-e-t-r-o-l-l-e billy patrol um fargo express uh, (laughs) the fargo express you got it the fargo express yes um a great fighter one of the one of the top fighters who never uh, won a world title, um, but w- one of the best fighters who never won a world title. Yes, yes. Okay, uh, who else did I put in there? Let me think. Well, a, f- a fight I like. I don't know if I put it in there, but um, and I, it's, I believe it's on YouTube. Is uh, Harold Johnson and Willie Pastrano? Hmm. Their title fight. Where Pastrano okay. uh, pulls the big upset. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, two master boxers. Two master right. boxers. Um, another fight, it's an old time fight, which, uh, I, I just, this was one of my favorite, two of my favorite fighters, Tony Canzaneri and Kid Chocolate. Mm. Um, their fight, magnificent fight. Um, you'll see it's just incredible. 
Tony Canzonari, C-A-N-Z-O-N-E-R-I, against Kid Chocolate. Kid Chocolate. And um, it was their title fight. <clears throat> great fight. Great fight. Absolutely. If you look at those fights, um, and I, I encourage your audience to, to check them out and uh, compare it to any fight today, you know, I, I think you'll see the difference. No doubt. What can I say? No doubt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Mike, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to to speak with me, and I highly recommend uh, The Night the Referee Hit Back, uh, memorable moments from the world of boxing to to all boxing fans out there. So uh, thanks for coming on, Mike. Can I mention one of the fight? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Also, um, although it was his last fight, uh, and but you, you you see the greatness that was in him, and you also see the greatness of the opponent who defeated him, and that's Tony Zale against Marcel Serdan. Mm. Um, it, it's um, you see the greatness of Serdan, but you also see Zale, who you know, who's of course past his peak, and it was his last fight, but. Um, it's just it's it's entertaining and and you see some real real solid boxing in that. Yeah, like Zay, when you talk about combination punching, like when, when you know when people think oh you know combinations is you know like you said flurries, but it's not necessarily that. Like when I think of Tony Zale, I always think of that right hand to the body, left hook to the head. He he put on Graziano that laid him out in their third fight. Is like that's a combination that's, right there. That's a beautiful that's combination. A combination. <laughs> and, and, and it was a favorite. His yeah. favorite combination. Yeah. And Graziano used to say, whenever somebody mentioned Tony Zale to me, he had a pain in his stomach. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it was a pleasure. I thank you very much, Kurt. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on, Mike. Uh, take care, and uh, really thank you. Let's do it again sometime. All right, all right. Talk to you later. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. And that will do it for another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast presented by The Ring and RingTV.com and distributed by the Leaving in the Ring Network. I'd like to thank Mike Silver for taking the time to speak with me. Really enjoyable conversation. Great guy. Um, if you like the podcast, please leave a comment or a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Audio Boom, SoundCloud, or wherever you access the Boxing Escort podcast. Really appreciate it. It helps new listeners find the podcast. And also, do not forget to check out my companion piece this podcast on ringtv.com. It will also feature quotes and background on the interview with Mike. And until next time, so long, everybody. Get what you was looking for?